The last page has been turned on my most recent read. I have just made my fifth cup of tea because it's the weekend and I woke up at 4.15 this morning for some unfair reason I cannot identify. Anyway, it's another week and another book. And as you know, I like to talk about different genres. And this is a book by an author I have talked about before. This week I have picked up a few books and my reading time has been greatly improved by a bank holiday and a few extra days off work. You may have seen my post on Instagram if you follow me over there. If you don't, what are you waiting for? I'll post the link in the notes. I have also finally started to add newer reviews to the website. But you don't have to fear finding out the twist in the tale or the happily ever after, because just like the podcast, the spoilers remain hidden. Coming up, I have a few more days off with good reason. I am taking part in Livestream for the Cure for the second year in a row, and I need to prepare for my moment on screen. I have a lot of books to go through, and I will be talking about that a little bit at the end of the episode so keep tuned in but needless to say it is a cause very close to my heart so whatever I can do to make a difference raise a little more awareness and a bit of money it's 100% worth it anyway let's get back to the book this one is part myth part urban fantasy it is based in the modern day world but one that i imagine sort of takes place beneath the surface of the one that we all exist in in it we are traveling from boston to cornwall and back again and a lot of magic is involved though there are no avada cadavers here so here i am no spoilers opinion filled as ever and ready to roll all of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. Join me today as we join a teenage girl who lives in a world of magic but has none for herself with the most recent book from Alexandra Bracken, Silver in the Bone. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and ex-coffee addict. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing, seriously, it's getting huge, to be red pile, and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. I have to be honest, I wasn't going to pick up this book at all. But then a friend told me about a new website that had limited edition covers, signed copies, and was a small business. Colour me invested. I saw the cover for this, then reread the blurb and thought, ooh, Arthurian legend. I think I like the idea of this. So I bought it. It actually only stayed on the shelf for a few days before I looked at it, beside the new Brandon Sanderson, Tress of the Emerald Sea, and decided that I wanted urban fantasy rather than pure fantasy. At least at that particular moment, it's changeable. It always is. I'm an emotional reader. The Sanderson won't stay unread for too much longer, I can assure you. There was just something about the gorgeous cover artwork and then the hardback cover underneath that called to me. Perhaps it was the magic within. So light a few candles or perhaps just switch on that reading lamp because a bit of atmosphere is always a wonderful accompaniment to a reading session. Get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening and your preference. 
and let's get started. Tamsin Lark didn't ask to be a hollower. As a mortal with no magic talent, she was never meant to break into ancient crypts or compete with sorcerers and cunning folk for the treasures inside. But after her thieving foster father disappeared without so much as a goodbye, it was the only way to keep herself and her brother Cabal alive. Ten years later, rumours are swirling that her guardian vanished with a powerful ring from Arthurian legend. A run-in with her rival, Emrys, ignites Tamsin's hope that the ring could free Cabal from a curse that threatens both of them. But they aren't the only ones who covered the ring. As word spreads, greedy hollowers start circling, and many would kill to have it for themselves. While Emrys is the last person Tamsin would choose to partner with, she needs all the help she can get to edge out her competitors in the race for the ring. Together, they dive headfirst into a viper's nest of dark magic, exposing a deadly secret with the power to awaken ghosts of the past and shatter her last hope of saving her brother. The book starts seven years in the past. Tamsin Cabell and their guardian Nash are in Cornwall, seeking out a legendary Athame. Nash is a hollower who is well known throughout the community as a bit of a charmer, a storyteller who is unreliable. Being without powers, Tamsin is often left behind when Cabell and Nash go off together. But one morning, Tamsin wakes up and Nash is gone. There is no sign of him. Together with her brother, Tamsin returns to their home in Boston. Time goes by and it's assumed that Nash has died. This alone gives Tamsin and Cabell the right to take their guardian's legacy place in the Guild of Hollowers. Despite lacking power, Tamsin has other abilities. She has a photographic memory and, determined to make up for the fact that she wasn't born with the one sight, she has learned multiple languages, has a hand of glory, a stubborn and rather snide character called Ignatius, who, despite having no tongue and therefore an inability to speak, is able to express himself incredibly well. The Hollowers compete with each other to be the first to track down important and valuable magical artefacts. And despite having no financial backing, unlike many of her peers, Tamsin and Cabell are good at their jobs. And they do their best to ensure that they are the first to bid on jobs that sometimes no one really wants. Of course, life would be too easy if Tamsin and Cabell were two normal magical teens, but they aren't because Cabal is living with a curse that has him turning into a snarling and violent beast when he loses control of himself. For the most part, Tamsin is able to bring him back to himself, but it can sometimes be a close call and she has plenty of scars to show for this. When not working as a hollower, a sort of magical Indiana Jones if you will, Tamsin brings in money by doing tarot readings, and it is while doing this that she meets Neve a young girl who tries to befriend our closed-off heroine, who, in turn, shuts down the attempts without any hesitation. As far as Tamsin is concerned, she has far more important things to do than make friends. Even so, it does come across as just a little bit too harsh. When Tamsin hears about a job that the sorceress Madrigal has put out to tender to find the Ring of Dispel, which was last known to be in Nash's possession... She races to be first in line, only to discover that Emrys Die, her main competitor and the boy who would be her nemesis, if only he would cooperate, is already there. On the hunt for the Ring of Dispel and terrified for Cabal, who left after his most recent turning, Tamsin heads for the last place she saw Nash, 
She also has a plan to resolve her issues with Ignatius. If she is successful, she won't need him again. Lying in her tent that first night on the coast of Cornwall, aware that there is a chance she could be killing herself, Tamsin drips droplets of basilisk venom into her eyes. Either this will give her the one sight, or it will kill her, and it will be an agonising death. And this is how Emrys finds her, and nurses her through the side effects of what turns out to be a successful attempt at switching on her powers. The next day starts as darkly as the previous one ended. Septimus Yarrow and many of his goons followed Tamsin, or perhaps they were following Emrys, and they captured Cabal. And there's also another surprise waiting for Tamsin in the form of Neve. It turns out that this regular visitor to Tamsin's shop is a sorceress in need of training. She provides just the distraction they need, and with Septimus in pursuit, the unlikely group finds a passage to Avalon. The island where King Arthur has been laid to rest is not at all what they expected. What was once verdant and thriving is now something from their worst nightmares, and even more terrifying, there is something in the shadows watching them. This place that was a paradise is closer to hell, and the people who lived there now live some kind of cursed existence. In the middle of it all is a small holding where the only survivors, the Nine of Avalon, and Bedivere, the only one of Arthur's surviving knights, live, guarding the king's tomb and trying to figure out a way to undo what has happened, though they aren't exactly sure what it was in the first place, which doesn't really help. Despite trying to stay distant from everyone, sticking to her usual keep-away-from-me rules, Tamsin finds that being in such close quarters with people she would prefer didn't get to know her makes maintaining this impossible. Slowly, without intending to, she finds that she has to let Neve into her very small group of friends, in other words, her and her brother, though she isn't happy about it, and Emrys, well, he's becoming impossible to resist. Everyone can see it but her. There is something between these two, and while Tamsin is fighting it with every ounce of her being, Emrys is doing his best to make things happen. He is affectionate, pushing against her boundaries and stepping over them whenever possible. The island is a dark and terrifying place, but Tamsin has a mission to finish, and whatever the consequences, she is determined she isn't going to fail, no matter what the cost to her own safety. I really want so much to tell you more, but once the action begins, betrayals are revealed, a secret is uncovered, and the truth behind the lies is unveiled. At such speed, you will feel as though it happens in moments, when it actually takes over 200 pages of story. And you know I don't want to spoil anything. Needless to say, this book is absorbing and enthralling, and if you want to find out what happens, you just have to read it for yourself. And I have returned to the new books again. I have been buying a lot and most of them are books that have been released in the last few months. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I do have a lot of older books on my shelf already. Unlike the last YA book that I read, Mel, this one isn't quite as gritty or as real as it is an urban fantasy, but it does still include conflict, distress, abandonment, violence and emotional confusion. 
I do want to add here that whatever the outcome of my reading is, I do not let the opinion of others sway me. As with every week, I do find the reviews of others interesting, especially with books that are a little older or very new and therefore can be a little harder to get hold of. This one luckily wasn't the case. As always, I like to provide a balanced perspective because I think that when it comes to deciding on a new book, having views from both ends of the spectrum is important. I'm not saying that you should allow yourself to be swayed by the views of others because you are the person doing the reading after all, but sometimes they can help you determine whether now is the right time to be reading something, especially if there are sensitive topics involved. Jenny gave the book a one-star review, which I have to admit surprised me, but then I saw that, like others with the same rating, it was a DNF on her part. She said, The more books I have to read, the more practical I need to be with which books I devote my time to, and I am sorry, but I had to DNF this one. I've tried three times to get into this, and this final time I gave it proper, dedicated time. No interruptions. I went back and reread the parts I'd already read, but I'm over 12% in and it still hasn't hooked me. I'm not invested in any of the characters. I don't know where the plot is going or what the world is about or why things are the way they are or anything, despite an awful lot of different things being mentioned. Sorceresses, tarot readings, a library with doorways to different veins that lead to random places, various unpleasant male characters, horrors, a werewolf, an absent parent figure, artifacts, searches for the artifacts as a mean to make a living but with no explanation of why that exists as a business. All of those things seem like they would make for a gripping fantasy story, but everything's still very disconnected. These things all happen to coexist in the same book, but I haven't managed to pick up the narrative thread yet. There are fleeting mentions of Arthur and a couple of famous sites in England that associate themselves with Arthur, but this is by no means an interweaving of Arthurian legend or myth or even themes as far as I can tell. The legend is just referred to and possibly used because retellings are in and King Arthur is well known, so therefore book sales? That's probably unfair of me since I'm only an eighth of the way through. But so far, Arthur is a token mention rather than an actual part of the story. I don't know. It just feels like a lot and very mu not very much at the same time so far. Since I couldn't finish it, I'll have to give this a one star for now. As I've already mentioned, this book is relatively new, having only been released on the 4th of April. As with all the newer books I review, that means that the majority of opinions come from people who have read an arc. And if you have ever read one, changes can be made between the arc and the final release. It's sort of like going to see a test screening of a new film. That said, it was interesting to see that the vast majority of one-star reviews were not only from people who had read the arc. I'm saying this like there were loads. There were a total of 21 one-star reviews and just nine written ones. But also, these people just hadn't finished the book. Though I am by no means the definitive source when it comes to how a review should be written, I do think that it's unfair to actually rate a book if you haven't finished it. This is why I actually forced myself to read The Mister by E.L. James. Seriously, that was punishment. People were ripping it to shreds and part of me really wanted to join in, but I felt it would be unfair of me to do so if I had no idea what I was critiquing. 
Needless to say, they weren't wrong. But at least I can criticise it in an informed way now, though I am unable to, unfortunately, forget how blinking awful it was. Reading these one-star reviews, I couldn't help but think that if the reviewers wanted to get their opinion down, they could have just left them unstarred rather than giving them a rating. Because while everyone is entitled to opinions, it isn't as formed as it would be if they had finished the book. Though that may not change their minds. Oh well, for whatever reason, they left these reviews and everyone is entitled to an opinion. I was surprised at how easy it was to find reviews for this book, given how new it is, and my history with previous new releases, and the number of reviews has been quite few. That having been said, there are only 1,666 ratings on Goodreads, and only 665 of those are fully written out reviews. As it stands right now, the book has a solid score of 4.07 and 76% of all ratings and reviews are 4 and 5 stars, which I personally feel is a positive indication of the wider opinion. As I say every single week, when it comes to opinions, whether it's for a book, film or a TV programme, every view is very personal to the individual who wrote it. So all of these reviews are completely subjective. When it comes to picking a book for yourself, it's always worth looking at more than one review if you're not sure. Though to be honest, I would personally ask a friend first because everyone's opinion is different and your friends are far more likely to have a similar perspective to you. Finding a five-star review for this book was much easier than it was to find for the last book I talked about. I certainly didn't have to go such to such extremes to find a positive opinion that was more than a simple rating, which I will admit is a massive relief because it can take hours to find them sometimes. Darcy really enjoyed the book and gave it five stars. She said... Let me just say that I am blown away and screaming, crying, dying for the second book ASAP. Literal tears were falling down my cheeks in rage and misery by the end of this book. I may have gotten a wee bit attached to a character or two. Whoops. And maybe I'm being dramatic, but I certainly enjoyed this book. No matter what they say or how much they lie to themselves, people don't want the truth. Sometimes I read books and don't like them, and I know that it's a me problem because I'm in the wrong mood, but this was the complete opposite. It was exactly what I needed at the right time, a new and fascinating fantasy book with interesting world building, but a basis of old and well-known Camelot tales, strong and unique characters, and a little enemies-to-lovers banter to make me giggle and kick my feet. You cannot... And I mean, cannot convince me that Emrys wasn't whipped for Tamsin this entire book. He was whipped, and I loved it because their banter was top level, and his adorable obsession with Tamsin was beyond fun to read about. Also, understandable, Emrys, because Tamsin was freaking cool. She could be a little on the nose sometimes, but I loved her growth and stubborn personality and her love for her brother just solidified my appreciation of her. It'll be all right, lass, this once give his care to another. No, that wasn't right. Cabell was mine to protect. He had been as long as I could remember. 
I really didn't enjoy Law by Alexandra Bracken back when I read it, but this book was honestly superb, so now I'm considering rereading that and seeing if it was a me problem last time. Not sure yet, but let me certainly recommend Silver in the Bone to everyone, whether you've enjoyed her previous works or not, because it was brilliant. I need the next book, Stat. What was that cliffhanger? I have always found reviews fascinating, especially when they differ so much from my own. There is nothing like a review to show how different and similar people can be. As with anything, when considering the reviews that a book has been given, you have to take a lot into account. The rating someone gives to a book depends on so many factors. For some reason, when I think about this, I'm always reminded of a book I read in my teens. The first time I read The Physician, it was the German imprinted title, Der Medicus. I loved it. It was the first book I tackled in a foreign language that was of considerable length. It's more than 700 pages and was a hard slog. But boy, did I feel accomplished when I'd finished it. However, reading it as an adult in her 20s in English, I felt differently. So my review had Goodreads existed at that point, which it didn't, would have been very different. Perhaps it was my feelings of achievement that greatly influenced my emotions around the book, but the fact remains my views were vastly changed not even 10 years later with exactly the same book. So I always think about this when I look at reviews. Just because my opinion and theirs aren't the same doesn't make their view any less valid in the scheme of things. Of course, we can't see into the heads of every reviewer who leaves a comment on a website, so we have to take each review written with a pinch of salt. Anyway, now I've told you about other people's views, let's get down to it. Here are my thoughts on Silver in the Bone by Alexandra Bracken. Completely spoiler-free and 100% honest. Did I like the book? Quite simply put, yes, I enjoyed the book. There was something about the story, the characters and the setting that had me taking a deep breath and just wanting to keep on reading. Even when it was gone midnight, I had work the next day and Darcy, the bundle of fluff who likes to sit in my spot on the sofa when I go to bed, was doing her absolute best to ensure I at least made my way into the bedroom. This is only the second book I have read by Alexandra Bracken, with the first one being Law, which I read almost two years ago. Where does the time go? There is something about the way that she creates her female protagonists that I find I like. I could spend a long time comparing Law and Tamsin, but I have already done an episode about the former, so let's focus on Tamsin Lark, the lead protagonist in our Arthurian tale. Though she could easily focus all of her attention on herself and be self-centred, selfish and arrogant, she is anything but. That's not to say that she doesn't have her faults because if she didn't have any that would make her a Mary Sue, something that Bracken appears to be quite good at avoiding when it comes to creating her characters. Tamsin has certainly been put through the ringer. But she is a survivor and though she has good reason to hide under the covers and never come out, she faces up to the issues that are making her life far more complicated than it needs to be. She is very resourceful and despite feeling a lot of resentment towards her former foster father come guardian Nash, 
with very good reason, he did abandon her and her brother after all, she still defends him when she has to. It's a case of, I can say anything I want, but you can't. The love she has for her brother Cabell is somewhat heartbreaking. It's not until she finally talks about how she came to be in Nash's care, which is actually pretty heartbreaking in itself, to be honest, that I realised he wasn't her true brother. Instead, he was another child who was taken under Nash's wing after being abandoned by his parents. So in a way, doesn't that make Nash kind of a good guy? At least to a certain degree. Granted, Tamsin's parents didn't exactly abandon her, but they may well have done. I know that several of the reviews mention they had problems with Tamsin's voice, finding her unrelatable or straight-up unlikable, but for me, this ice coldness and detachment was part of her charm. It was obvious from the start that the distance she maintained from everyone was to ensure that no one else got hurt, and also to protect herself. Keeping people away, alienating them, is something that people do when they don't feel happy in themselves. She has more reason than most to suffer from abandonment issues, and this is textbook handling of that particular issue. She pushes people away rather than risking the possibility of getting close to them and then having them leave, and this makes her come across as prickly and unfriendly, when in reality this is incredibly far from the truth. The evidence of this comes when she finally allows herself to ease up a bit and open up to the people around her as she comes to rely on them for support, something she is unfamiliar with. Cabell is the only person she has ever allowed to get close to her because they seem to understand each other. He has his own reasons for keeping people at a distance. I guess you could say that he has his violent and animalistic alter ego, though this is definitely simplifying it. Because with this book, we have left the reality we are familiar with and entered a world where magic and curses are real. As I've already said, slowly Tamsin starts to let people in, starting with her one-time enemy, the charming, wealthy and somewhat smug Emrys Dye, He comes to her in her time of need and helps her to cope with the agony of a transformation that she forces upon herself, because what use is a hollower who doesn't have the one sight? There is something simmering beneath the surface with these two from the very start, and I was almost waiting for the volcano to explode and take them with it. It's obvious that Emrys is attracted to Tamsin, and though he's tentative in approaching her with anything resembling affection, though I do love the fact that he calls her bird, the fact that he takes the verbal abuses she dishes out and keeps on coming back made me chuckle just just a little bit. I'm not a fan of the whole boy who pulls girls' pigtails likes her cliché, but that's exactly what their relationship starts at, definitely. She can't stand him or the fact that he's so entitled and knows it, but then you only see what people want you to see, and that's a message that carries pretty much throughout the whole book. Early in the book, we meet Neve when she visits Tamsin to get her tarot read. She makes an attempt to befriend our rather unfriendly heroine and is rebuffed quite efficiently, and pretty harshly, because Tamsin assumes that it's not so much an offer as friendship as it is a sign of romantic attraction. So it's no surprise that when Neve turns up again, 
as Tamsin and Emrys are attempting to find entry onto the island of Avalon, the younger girl is less than friendly herself. As I have already mentioned, I like the fact that Tamsin isn't Miss Sweetness and Light. In fact, this is a characteristic that she seems to have in common with Bracken's other mythologically based heroine, Law. A lot happens in this first book. It's the world building, the setup, but there's also a lot of underlying plot. And we are introduced to a lot of intertwining stories that all start and end with the ring of dispel that Nash, Tamsin's foster father, had in his possession when he disappeared seven years before while travelling with her and Cabell in Cornwall. He vanished without a word and Tamsin's anger at him for abandoning her has never left. I like the fact that while there is no denying this is a YA story, the main characters are barely 18 and the number of adults in the book can be counted on the fingers of less than one hand. It doesn't shy away from death and disfigurement and torture and violence. There are fights to the death. There is a massacre, which is heartbreaking. And as I have already mentioned, there is conflict and lots of it. Tamsin isn't the most approachable of people. And when our characters arrive on the supposedly beautiful Isle of Avalon to find it is anything but the paradise they have come to expect it will be. She doesn't waste time in making enemies of the people they will soon rely on for food, shelter and aid. Bit stupid if you ask me. Katrina, Olwyn and Flea are the ones that immediately come to mind. Flea is a rebellious child who I envisage as being mischievous and maybe ten or so. She enjoys testing her limits, much like Tamsin, and is sort of the comic relief which we definitely need in this story. Then we have Katrina, the woman in charge. She's the person you can see Tamsin becoming with a little more experience, tough, unbending and determined, but also sacrificing. She will do anything for her sisters on the island, up to and including giving her life, should that prove necessary. And then there's Olwyn, calm, caring, collected and giving. She is the opposite of Katrina in all things but that giving aspect of her nature. She welcomes strangers into their home, unsure of where that could possibly lead. I know that I've already talked about Emrys when it comes to his relationship with Tamsin, but as a character on his own, there is no denying that he is fascinating. It's obvious from the start that he is hiding something. Is it his interest in Tamsin, or is it something else that's far more sinister? Well, you're not going to find that out from me. He is the so-called golden boy of the Hollowers, the only son of a powerful and well-admired man in the guild that Tamsin and Cabell belong to. He is also handsome, intelligent, and has a very powerful magic that he does his best to hide, an affinity with plants. However, when you look beyond that, there is something else. His name means immortal and is a Welsh translation of the Greek name Ambrosius. This may seem unimportant, but I promise it has relevance. A castle, believed to have been built by Prince Llewellyn the Last on a hillock above the Glaslin River, was the site of the famous exchange between the warlord Vortigern and a young Merlin. Fleeing Anglo-Saxon invaders, Vortigern came to Wales and chose the hill fort as his retreat. However, all efforts at building on the site failed, with workers returning daily to find collapsed masonry. 
Vortigern was counseled to seek the help of a young boy born of a virgin mother. A suitable boy was found named Merdin Emrys Merlin Ambrosius. Vortigern's plan to kill Merdin to appease the supernatural powers preventing him from building his fortress was scorned by Merdin, who instead explained that the fort could not stand due to a hidden pool containing two dragons. The white dragon, he explained, of the Saxons would, be, would in time be defeated by the British red dragon. This hillock is now known as Dinas Emrys. So even Emrys's name ties him back to the stories of Merlin. As with urban fantasies, the thing that makes them so appealing is the fact that they are adding an element of the mystical and magical to a world that we are already familiar with. In this case, it's modern-day Boston and the already somewhat magical Cornwall, the location where most Arthurian legend has taken place. Tintagel is somewhere I have not had the chance to visit, I visited Cornwall once when I was a grand age of six and the only thing I remember about the trip is my brother got bitten in the face by a dog and we had a cream tea in a round building. But I'm talking about something that happened 43 years ago. It is a place with a romantic history and there is something so beautiful about the wild coastline, even in photographs, that you can see why it's the site of so many incredible, fantastical tales. There is something about this story that drew me in from the very beginning. I'm not going to deny that the first few chapters are a little slow as we get to know the characters and everything that they've gone through, and it would have been nice to learn a little bit more about the history of this particular version of the world that we are visiting, but I cannot deny that once I started to get pulled in, I didn't want to stop reading. This book is the first in a series and I really want to revisit Tamsin, Neve, Emrys, et al. again, but I still can't help wishing that we'd had a sequel to Law. Will I read anything else by Alexandra Bracken? I've already read Law and I really enjoyed it, so much so that after borrowing it from the library for my first read, I ended up buying a copy of my own to add to my small but growing mythology shelf. I know that she has written a few more books, namely those in the Darkest Mind series, or at least they're the ones that first spring into my head. Though I have had a look at them, they are not speaking to me in the same way that her most recent publications have done. Of course, there is a sequel to Silver in the Bone due out at some point in 2024, if the information on Goodreads is in any way accurate. So that will have to go on the list for some point in the relatively near future if you're looking for something like this or you loved this and want something else then you'll love these I thought that this would be a little harder than it actually is when it comes to teens who are placed in an uncomfortable and potentially dangerous situation that is mythologically focused a few books immediately come to mind first on the list is of course the lightning thief the first book in the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series by Rick Riordan. Percy is a lot younger in the books than he was in the films, so he's truly shoved in at the deep end with no idea of how to control his powers or even what they are. And he's battling people who have been training longer, were far more aware of their origins and actually had control over their abilities. The next book is one that I loved when I was a child. 
Susan Cooper's Oversea Under Stone, the first in her The Dark is Rising sequence. The whole book is set in Cornwall and plays on the Arthurian myths incredibly well. Most people will be more familiar with the second book in the series thanks to the 2007 film based rather loosely on the book and titled The Seeker. However, the entire series is well worth a read. I've mentioned it enough during this review, so I should probably mention lore again. What? How many times does that make it now? Three? Four? Five? I don't know, I've lost count. Like Percy Jackson, this book has a focus in Greek mythology, but I think that's where the similarities end. If you want to find out more about that one, give my 2021 episode a listen and I will link it below. Legend born and blood-marked by Tracy Dion weave Arthurian legend through modern society. And though I have to admit I have both of these on my shelf, they are a little bit further down the reading list. That should probably change because every time I look at them, my fingers itch. The covers are stunning and I love the idea of the story. I know that Marion Zimmer Bradley is a bit of a controversial author, especially with recent or relatively recent news. However, her novel The Mists of Avalon could be said to be one of the first mythological retellings that used the current trend of having a female voice tell the story of what happened. In this case, it was through the eyes of Morgan Le Fay and Guinevere. She also wrote The Firebrand, A Tale of Troy Told by Cassandra. And of course, no list would be complete without my nan's favourite Arthurian tales, starting with The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. Originally published in 1970, this series of five books, titled The Arthurian Saga, starts with the story of Merlin from birth. So she really goes right back to the beginning to tell the story of this legendary king. I have been a busy bee this week and just today I received three parcels containing books. One is my brand new subscription to the Locked Library. The others are impressive in size, though I know that they only contain three books I ordered from Waterstones. Yes, I am holding off on opening them right now. I have a lot to read before I get there. Last week, I met up virtually with author Kathy Bramley and we talked about her new book, The Sunrise Sisterhood, which was released on the 11th of May. If you love books all about different types of love and the importance of families and relationships, then you'll love it. Also, if you haven't heard the episode, definitely go back and give it a go. Despite the fact that I have bought quite a few new books recently... Looking at my shelves, I think it's about 10, and that's not including the books that arrived today. They will all get read eventually. It doesn't mean I have stopped looking for more. So if you do have recommendations, whether it's books you've read or books you just want to hear me talk about in my spoiler-free reviews, send them on over. I'm always interested in being introduced to new books and new authors. You can send me an email at beingbookishpod at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram and I will be sure to check them out. This coming Thursday, the 18th of May, I am taking part in the annual live stream for The Cure. Listen to the trailer to find out more about what it's about and how you can help. Together, we can make a difference. 
That's been the sign off for everything live stream for the cure related ever since the event began back in 2017. Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I am the host of the live stream for the cure, an annual charity event to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute for immunotherapy research for a world immune to cancer. And over the past six years, we've made that difference together. Amazing listeners, amazing viewers, amazing podcast partners and content creators all coming together and we've raised over $70,000. But this year, we're going to make our biggest difference to date and we're going to raise $25,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Tune into the event at twitch.tv slash livestream for the cure starting May 18th as we're joined again by podcast partners and content creators from around the world to help the Cancer Research Institute crush cancer. Together, we will make a difference. Don't forget, if you want to hear about new releases and other books I've read and keep up with my reviews, you can sign up for my newsletter at my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Well, that's it for this week. and Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any of the other podcatchers where you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at being bookish pod or you can check out my website beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I have definitely got a lot to get ready for next week and another new book on my shelf that I've just started is already calling me. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.